Our Father, we're thankful that you have provided our salvation by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ that is firmly rooted upon your sovereign promises and your omnipotent work. And it is not in any way dependent upon human merit and human works. Therefore, it's secure. We thank you that you have provided an inerrant record of your footsteps through history. And we ask that your Holy Spirit open our hearts to that record again tonight. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We've been going through the um, events following the separation of the northern and southern kingdom. Just to review a little bit. These two, the, the north is the group that left the nation. They are the, the uh, rebels. And what we want to look at in this period of history, because tonight we're going to finish up this segment of history and then go into doctrine next week that comes out of these historical events. Um, we want to get back and focus and realize what's going on here at this point in Israelite history. We've had the kingdom, we've had the golden era, and now we have people rebelling against the authority of the Lord and his word in some way, shape, or form. So what we're being treated to in all these stories is a picture of how our God rules his kingdom. Whereas before, in some of the other events, we were getting a picture of how God saves us out of the world. Now we're getting a picture of how God rules his own. And it's, it's really not a pretty picture in here because it's dealing with rebellion. It's dealing with sin. And uh, it's not a particularly um, nice chapter in Israel's history. But it's been preserved for us in the scriptures that we may learn from it. And the record the prophets have kept together to tell the story of how the father rules with his children. And in a day when we uh, despise all kinds of authority, starting from the word of God and working downward, when we go down into the home and uh, parental authority is overthrown, and oftentimes... Uh, by the society at large, working against the family. Um, here we see that inside God's kingdom, he takes authority structures very seriously. And he works through these authority structures. And when the authority structures are violated, there are certain prices that are paid. So, the first thing we want to do tonight is we want to go back uh, to a story, that first king's um, story that we, we uh, ended with last time, that weird story of that prophet. We had some discussion after class about that prophet. Um, and so we want to turn back to um, let's see, it's 1 Kings 13. And while we're turning there, um, let's look at something else too. Between the north and the south, there was a, there was a great difference. Um, on the top of page, or on the bottom of page 23, 
I tried, I tried to summarize uh, the flow of history here with these kings. So let's draw a little chart. And uh, one side of the chart will have the picture in the south and the other chart the picture in the north. These two pictures are going to reveal something about how God works. In the south, there was how many dynasties throughout this period? You had Solomon, Rehoboam, and you're going to have these kings in succession. So, on the, on the southern part of the kingdom, we have one dynasty. And that shouldn't be surprising, because what did God promise he was going to do? Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. Always go back to the structure, because if you keep going back to the structure of the Word of God, that gives you this confidence um, that God knows what he's doing and that he controls our problems and, and he's someplace to flee because there's structure there and there's reliability. That's why I keep going over and over the covenants, the covenants, the covenants, the promises, the promises, over and review and review and review and review. Because we can't get too much of this idea that where God rules and where uh, his elective power works, there's no overthrowing it. Now, in the north, at the same time this was going on, and this paragraph, I summarized it, the average length of reign in the south. Now, this is the average length of reign of individual kings um, between these events and the exile. So, and during this time period, uh, neither kingdom was doing too good on the scale of godliness. But notice the statistical difference in the length of the reigns of individual kings. In the north and the south, the exile was 17.7 uh, years. In the north, the average duration of a king sitting on his throne was 11.7 years. So right away, we have a ratio established here. Obviously, the south is more stable. But uh, in addition to these year lengths of the reign, you have only one dynasty here. Now, let me show you what's going on in the north at the same time. At the same time Rehoboam rules, you have Jeroboam. He is succeeded by a son who is assassinated. So this dynasty lasts and his son is killed. The next dynasty is a man by the name of Basha. He tries to pass it off to his son and his son is killed. Then the third king is Zimri. He lasts one week before he's eliminated. And finally we come to our character tonight, Ahab. Now all four of these guys are in different families. So how many dynasties have we already had in the, no in the north? Four dynasties. In the south, we have the stability. The Davidic dynasty endures. Has its problems, but the dynasty and the dynastic succession is secure. In the South, you see no such demonstration of, this, of any kind of political stability uh, in the North, rather. And the interesting thing about it is that in all this instability that they've created for themselves, what was the reason they split in the first place? They wanted to get stability. They wanted to get uh, their own freedom. Remember they said the first thing that uh, Jeroboam did, we studied it last week, 
What did he go into? What was this big long thing that he went into to establish his own religious state? He was afraid that two kingdoms with the people going into the south. Remember what happened? He, w he established, after the, after the um, revolt, he was afraid that his people in the orange part here, when they went south three times a year to Jerusalem, which they were ordered to do by the word of God, that they would become politically allied with Judah. That you couldn't have two political kingdoms and only one faith. If you're going to have two political kingdoms, you had to have two faiths. Now, right in the newspapers recently, we've seen the same principle work out. We've had the visit to Cuba of a representative of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, what's interesting to watch between Pope John and Castro is that when Castro took over, and I remember very distinctly because I was in college, we used to have demonstrations against him, at that point, he, when he took over, he ruptured the relationship between the Catholic Church and Havana, and he did so for a very clear-cut reason. There were a lot of Cuban Catholics, and he was afraid that if he took over, his power would be diluted by the Roman Catholic Church. So therefore, immediately he saw the connection and he proceeded to attack the Catholic Church and evangelicals too, by the way. So he realized that there's a threat if you have people across a political boundary that think the same way. The problem, however, as we saw last week, was that Jeroboam had been promised his kingdom by God. So therefore... When he went to solve his political problem and screwed up, he didn't have to pick that kind of a solution because he had no problem politically. Ultimately, Jeroboam did not have a problem politically because God said the kingdom would be his. God offered him a stable dynasty. All he had to do was follow the word of God, including allowing his people three times a year to come into the south. That was a condition. He had to have enough trust in the Lord that his subjects could go cross that border and not become political traitors to his kingdom and his authority. But he couldn't believe God for that, and he had to try to solve his problem with some human gimmick solution. And he wound up by having one temple here at Bethel and another one up here in Dan, bracketing his kingdom. And he not only, as we saw last time, he not only set up the, the temples, he replaced the priesthood, obviously did away with the word of God, and then he had the audacity to create his own calendar, to deliberately create festivities and festivals so, that would be allied to his man-made religion. So his solution to his political problem to, quote, get political stability for his kingdom was to destroy the biblical faith. Now, what an irony. And after we have taken this three-minute review of the northern kingdom, let's go back to the chart we just drew and ask ourselves, did Jeroboam's gimmick, did his human solution to the problem of politically, political stability work? Absolutely not. It was a disaster. It was an absolute failure. 
And this is a demonstration that we will see again and again in the book of Kings. The book of Kings is arguing that when you're faced with circumstances and problems, you don't try to solve it yourself. You are supposed to be people of the kingdom. And if you're people of the kingdom, you act like people of the kingdom, and you go to the Lord for the solution to the problem. You go to his word for the solution to the problem. You don't try to mimic the world. Well, these guys tried to mimic the world. It was standard. It was SOP. This was standard operating procedure in any political environment. So Jeroboam went ahead and did that, and everybody else in the world was doing it, so why not him? And the subtle argument you're going to get here is, you don't do it, Jeroboam, because you're not in the world. You're in God's kingdom, and God doesn't want you to act that way. So, human solutions in defiance of the word of God collapse of their own weight eventually. That's the big lesson we're learning here. Now, in 1 Kings 13, obviously it's a troubled passage. It's a, it's a, it's a problem chapter, and we had a, some good Q&A over that. And one of the things I want that did come out of that discussion is in verse 18. So if you turn there, I want to introduce a, a, a principle here tonight that we're going to track through, some, uh, through the whole text, actually. In verse 18, you remember the man of God had delivered, he'd come from the southern kingdom, and he had delivered the message God told him to deliver to the people in the north. He was on his way back. He got intercepted by another man who was one of the uh, prophets in the north who had been intimidated, who had been silent, uh, who was basically in retreat as far as his personal faith was concerned the Lord. And this guy came up to him with a ruse in verse 18. And in our Q&A, we, we were talking about that uh, Look what he says in verse 18, and a person rightly remarked, this is pretty rough. I mean, the, the God, man of God goes north, he, he minds his business, he executes the plan of God, he's completed his mission, and now he's on his way home, and he encounters this guy who in verse 18 says, I also am a prophet like you, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. And so he, this, this he, the pronoun he in verse 19, is the original man of God. Now this raises a question that is raised several times and is going to be raised very dramatically tonight. And that is, how do you tell a true prophet from a false prophet? Very basic question. And it was a basic question then because... Who controlled the kings? The king couldn't ascend to the throne without an authorizing prophet. And by the way, those four characters that we saw, if you read the, read the text, you'll see very few of them had any authorizing prophets. Prophets did prophesy in some of their cases, but it's not a clear-cut case where they were um, Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Well, if Messiah means the anointed one, somebody has to do the anointing. Well, who does the anointing of the king? king can't do it. He doesn't anoint himself. So it's the prophet that always anoints the king. That's the word Messiah, from which we get the word Messiah. That's what Messiah means. That's why the Gospels start not with Jesus, but with John. 
John is the anointer of Jesus. The procedure in the Gospels is pure Old Testament procedure. It would have been understood by anybody who had understood Kings and Samuel. The Messalian king has to be anointed by a prophet. Well, now that, that raises the question, how do you then tell a true prophet from a false prophet? And in particular, how do you deal with it in verse 18? Now, here's the true prophet being told that this guy has the word of the Lord and is coming to him. Okay? Now, the question then is that if this man who has been given a sign, who has come because of the Lord, uh, he called him, the test that he could have used in verse 18 is given in the book of Deuteronomy. So we want to go back. Notice how we're going backwards now. Remember, we don't believe the way the liberals teach in the university and college campuses, that the Bible was put together in an evolutionary fashion and a piece here and a piece there, and the book of Deuteronomy is late and all the rest of it. We have to go back again and again to what was the law of the kingdom. If we're living in the kingdom, there has to be a law that controls the kingdom. The great king who rules the kingdom has policies. He's revealed those policies at Sinai. Now, part of those policies deal with the false prophet issue. So now we're going to go to Deuteronomy to one of two tests that this guy should have used in this text, and he screwed up. So let's turn to Deuteronomy 13. There's another a feature to these tests. Now, for us, it's not a matter of life and death. But in Israel, it was. Because if a person were identified as a false prophet, guess what happened? Capital crime. Why do you suppose, by the way, being a false prophet was a capital crime? Anybody got an idea of why? Why was this treated as adultery and murder to be a false prophet? What is the office of the prophet? How important is the office of the prophet? Crucial. Because he's the one that is the ambassador of the great king. And if the, we're in his kingdom and we have to have a message from the king, we've got to get it through a prophet. So, the umbilical cord of the word of God that connects God and the believer is through the prophet. Still is, by the way. Who wrote the book? Even the New Testament is written by those of the gift of prophecy. That's why the gift of prophecy shall cease in 1 Corinthians 13 when the canon of Scripture is completed. Not going to continue. That's a Protestant principle. We don't have prophets today because we don't need prophets today because the canon is complete today. But when the canon was open, the prophets were speaking. If there were a prophet today, they should be writing Scripture. Where's, no, I don't see Revelation 23 being written. So, the point is that prophets speak God's words in an infallible way. So, we've got to learn to identify the false ones and the true ones. And Deuteronomy 13 is one of the two tests given in the Old Testament. Let's observe this. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and notice the condition in verse 2, and the sign or wonder does come true, um, this authenticates. 
concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, what is the test? The test of the false prophet at this point, test number one, is a test of theological consistency. So we'll call this T1. And T1 means that the Word of God is always consistent. There's not a conflict in Scripture. And by the way, this is another argument for inerrancy of the Scriptures. You can't have the Bible teaching five different things. If the Bible teaches five different things, you just destroyed test one. Test one means that whatever the prophets are saying, they have got to build and not be in conflict with what preceded the prophets. Who put the first five books of the Bible together? Moses. That's why it's Moses, or the law, and the prophets and the writings. Remember the three parts of the Hebrew canon. Okay, the foundation is the law, or Moses. The prophets build on the foundation. So the frame of the house has to fit the cement foundation. And that's the test. Does the house fit the foundation? Do the prophets in their teaching authenticate Moses? And that's the teaching. Because you can't use miracles. Verses 1 and 2 shows you you cannot use miracles as pure authentication devices for a prophet. It doesn't matter whether the signs or wonders come to pass. You can have false prophets who can work miracles. The book of Revelation says, when the beast and the false prophet come, they will have tremendous miracles. They'll delude the whole world. People will flock to these guys because they authenticate themselves with miracles that happen. So miracles are not an authenticating positive sign of a prophet. So that may shock some of you who have not seen this section of Scripture. But it's very interesting. The content of teaching outweighs the authentication of miracles. The teaching of the Word of God is over miracles in authority in Scripture. Because it's where you test. The testing ground is on the teaching, not on the miracles. In a positive sense. Meaning, when I say positive sense, if a miracle positively occurs then that is not a sign unless it is accompanied by orthodox teaching. Okay, so that's test number one. That's the test that the prophet in 1 Kings 13 should have used. Because God had told him to go into the land to, and come back and not stop. Not stop. Okay, this guy comes out and says, Oh, well, I just got a word from God that said, uh, plans have changed. No. God's plans don't change. Therefore, the prophet in 1 Kings, the first prophet, was out of line because he failed to apply the test, and it cost him his life. He failed to apply test number one to the situation. See? So, that's one of the tests. The same test is repeated by Paul in the book of Galatians. What does Paul say in the book of Galatians? If I or an angel from heaven teach another gospel to you, let him, and in the Greek it says, let him be damned. So, the test of the gospel. 
Even Paul, once he disgorged the true gospel and wrote it, he himself could not depart from it. This is the Protestant answer to the Catholic Church. In the Catholic Church, the argument always is that Mother Church gave the book. Mother Church has the authority to interpret that book. The Protestant answer is, yes, the Bible was written by the Church, we agree, but once the book was written, it becomes the law of the Church, just as the law in the Old Testament came through Jews. Does that mean the Jews can change the law? No. Once the law is written and inscripturated, it becomes an anchor to which the people who spawned it must adhere. It's the same principle. And that's why as Protestants we believe in the supreme authority of Scripture. Yes, the church gave the Bible, but the Bible now rules the church, not the church rules the Bible. Fundamentally different faith going on here. All right, that's what the false prophet could have, uh, the godly man, 1 Kings 13, should have done. Now what we want to do tonight is come over to 1 Kings 16. Oh, before we get there, while we're in Deuteronomy, let's look at the other test because we're going to see that tonight. Deuteronomy um, 18, verse 22. This is T number 2. This is the other test of a false prophet. Deuteronomy 18, um, 20. It's in a context of prophets. And that the prophet, verse 20, who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet is capitally punished. Then, obviously, if you're on a jury, you're going to raise the... Excuse me. Um, We've got this guy in here. He's being accused of being a false prophet. What are the rules of evidence we apply in the trial? Remember, this is law. Verse 21, and you may say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? So now we're going to go into rules of evidence of how you decide the issue. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Now notice what this, it looks like a miracle is involved here, but it's in the negative sense. A f- this is the fact that the word, here we had the, the word had to be consistent. Here, the word has to be shown in history. So this is a test of experience, and this is a test of reason. The word is self-consistent, and the word proves out in actual practice and experience. A false word doesn't work. It never authenticates itself. Now notice, what's, put the two tests together. Now here's a test. A guy comes along and a miracle happens. Does that authenticate anything? No. If the guy comes along and says there's going to be a miracle and it doesn't happen, does that authenticate something? Yes, it does. You see, it only works negatively, not positively. Yet you go out here in the street and ask a hundred people, and 99 of them will tell you, well, if the miracle happens, it's got to be the Word of God. No, it doesn't. If the miracle doesn't happen, it's not the Word of God. It's exactly backwards. So watch these two tests. This one is a negative one also. 
the word is inconsistent with the rest of the word, it's wrong. And if it doesn't prove out in history, it's wrong. Now, see, there's another argument implicit in all this of why we fundamentalists believe in an inerrant Bible. Why do we believe in an inerrant Bible? You go into a liberal church and they'll tell you, well, we believe in the, in the intent of the Bible. The Bible, after all, wants to in, stimulate us to good and godly life, and we like that. We agree with that. But we don't agree with necessarily everything in the Bible is true. Excuse me. Deuteronomy 18 says, what? If a section in the Bible is not true, what does verse 22 condemn it to be? The word of man. So these tests don't work unless you're a fundamentalist and believe in the word of God. That's one of the things that authenticates our position on scripture. Okay? Well, now we've seen T1 failed in 1 Kings 13. Now we're going to watch what happens when T2 is applied. And for that, we're going to go to the reign of Ahab in 1 Kings um, 16. You're following in the notes. We're on page 24. We go through a bunch of kings in, in 1 Kings 16, and we finally come to... Ahab. And um, he's the son of Omri. Verse 29. We pick up the text at verse 29. Again, we're sorry. This is not a verse-by-verse -verse approach to the Old Testament. Uh, we'd be here for a number of nights uh, to do that. So all I can do is, I'm, I'm in, this, in this course, we're just dealing with major events. But let's look at the text here. 1 Kings 16 29. Before we read anything further, let's ask a question and answer it to our satisfaction. Who is writing these words? This is about history. Already these guys have all their, their uh, reigns written in their own journals and their own chronicles because we've seen that notice, haven't we? Several times in Kings. If you want to know the rest of what the king did, look in the book of the Chronicles of King X. Because the kings kept chronicles. Each court, court had its own chronicler. So whoever wrote the book of kings had the set of chronicles in front of him. It was like the Encyclopedia Britannica. He had all that data, which unfortunately we've lost. So he selected things out of those books, or the committee of prophets that did. So the prophetic writing, writers wrote kings. And that's why when I brought my Hebrew Bible in back several moons ago, remember I said there was three parts of that Bible? the law, the prophet, and the kings. And I said, at the time, I said, you know, it's strange, isn't it, that in the section of the prophets you have books like Kings and Samuel. And you think, prophets, we ought to have Daniel in there, we ought to have Isaiah, Jeremiah, but I don't understand why Kings is in the, book of, is in the prophetic section of the whole Hebrew Old Testament. Well, now you do. Now we understand. Because the book... The, the section in the Hebrew Bible of prophetic writings doesn't mean necessarily they're all forward-looking. They're backwards analysis of history to tell us what God was doing then. Remember when we read Genesis? Genesis stylistically was what? Open history. This did this, did this, this, did this, and so forth. Is there any condemnation in Genesis? Think back to the style. Satan comes to Eve. Eve says this. Eve eats the fruit. Adam eats the fruit. They die. 
God kicks them out of the garden. Is there any commentary in the text? It's straightforward history. But in this book, this, unlike the Genesis style, is a commentary on history. It's history interpreted, not just narrated. So watch, the, the, watch this. You'll see several notices of this. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. See that? That is a prophetic analysis of the reign of Ahab. So what we're getting here is history interpreted prophetically. This is an editorial by a prophet. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Now let's stop right there. Page 24 of your notes. Look at the first complete paragraph where I give you every reference to the sins of Jeroboam and count the number of times the prophetic writers use this expression, the sins of Jeroboam. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen times in the book of First and Second Kings is the sin of Jeroboam referred to. What is the sin of Jeroboam? It goes back to the things that we discussed when he rejected the temple, he rejected the law, and he established his own human solution to the problem of security. That is the sin of Jeroboam. Seeking man's solution to a circumstance that he should have sought God's solution. And it was an official solution that established official cultic centers paid for with tax money by the subjects of the northern kingdom. He mimicked the southern calendar and he replaced the authorized priesthood. When it says, therefore, in this passage, though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, what does that mean as a king? It means that he continued those policies. He continued to finance those cultic centers. He continued to hire people off the street to be priests when he should always have qualified them whether they were of the tribe of Levi. And he went on and continued financing two kingdoms with two faiths. A man-made substitute for biblical faith. All right, so he, he followed that. Now, verse 31, further on. And he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbael, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Ashtaroth. Thus Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh, God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, just stop there. We're going to get to verse 34 in a minute. But notice the analysis. Pretty grim. This is the third step down. First we have the rupture, the rejection of the Davidic dynasty. We go to the next step, rejection of the temple and all is associated with it. And now we are going to see Yahweh himself is officially banned from his own kingdom. At this point, there has been an official, complete, flagrant, public, proclaimed Replacement. They have changed gods at this point. And this is inside the kingdom of God. 
So it's a very sobering thing to see what believers can do. Totally replace God here. Now, I'm not saying everybody here is a believer. I'm just saying, though, this is inside the kingdom of God. Imagine what is outside the kingdom of God. Now, let's look into a few details in verse 31. The name Jezebel. Now, I hope when parents go to name female babies, you don't try this one, please. And I, you know, we laugh at it, but my wife and I knew a couple, and this woman was, is now a Christian, but when she was in a certain well-known cult that comes knocking on your door every week, she thought she was being very biblical, and she named her daughter Delilah. So, people do this. They'll pick out a biblical name, sounds great, but, you know, put it in context. Jezebel is a name that throughout Scripture, from this point forward, is an emblem of evil. In the book of Revelation, Jezebel is mentioned. Jesus mentions Jezebel in his condemnation of the church. So, this is a very evil name. Jezebel. And you'll see why as we go on. So now he not only marries this woman, Jezebel, but who is this woman? Notice her father. Her father was Ithbael, and we'll see uh, that in a moment, what that means, but basically it's of, of Baal, the king of the Sidonians. Now let's look up along the coast here. Along the coast of what is called Phoenicia, there are two cities along that coastline. One is Sidon, the other is Tyre. Sidon is still there. It's a port in Lebanon. And that was the place which was very wealthy. Anybody know why it was so wealthy? What were the Phoenicians known for in history? These guys were floating in cash. They were the merchantmen. They carried the goods all the way out of this area. They had a monopoly on the navy. And basically, they took over because, remember, Solomon wanted his two-fleet navy. What did he do? Where did he go get the guys that were skilled at navigation? He borrowed them from Hiram, hired those guys down from Phoenicia. So these guys are very well-trained. They've always had commerce, very wealthy. And it's one of those cities in Tyre that is the picture of the very seat of Satan in the book of Ezekiel. Oh, 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 Tyre, king of Tyre. And he's, he's pictured, he talks to Satan through the king of Tyre. Because these guys were rolling in cash. And they were also very apostate. And their religious connection was with the Canaanites that were the people who were to be slaughtered in holy war. So now we wind up with this guy marrying not just a pagan woman, not just an unbelieving woman, but of all the women he could have found... He picks the daughter, a zealot of the high priest of Canaanite religion. Great marriage. Really helps the state of Israel. Look at Dr. Broner's comment at the bottom of page 24. The meaning of Ithbael, her father's name, is apparently with him Baal. The, by the word, the Baal is a code name. It's, it means Lord, but in a little L sense. And it's taken on the flavor in the scriptures of, of a bad God. Now, there's, a, there's an interesting story behind this name and why the Bible uses it. If you go out in the secular history, you find Ashtaroth and so on, and you find El, you find some reference to Baal, but some of the gods and goddesses that are included under the term Baal in the Old Testament had other names. It almost seems like the men who wrote 
the prophetic scriptures were shy about naming all these gods at times. Sometimes they're not. But they would tend to just write, this god is Baal, this god is Baal, this god is Baal. So every time you see Baal, you can't make a one-to-one equation with a certain god. turns out that that's a, it's a label, common label for pagan gods. So, so Dr. Brunner says, uh, the idea of the, na- the name intended to convey was that the person enjoyed the favor and protection of Baal. According to Josephus, Ithbaal was king of the Tyrrhenians and Sidonians. Notice, not just the priest, not just the priest, as it says in the text here, that he was the king, but he's also the priest. The, the, king, the text says king, but you'll see later on. Meander, the Ephesians, stated that Ithbaal was a priest of Ashtar. See, that's what I mean. So, so, so he's called Baal, but here it's also known as Ashtar. Who came to the throne by murder of the Eusepi Phellus. The zealousy of Jezebel is perhaps understandable if we remember that she was educated in the home of a priest of Baal. Her fanaticism can be attributed to her early environment and training. Now, this lady was a fanatic. She got her way with her husband. Several cases in here show you. When this guy was confused, he always ran to Jezebel. Jezebel, will you please help me solve my problem? And so... Jezebel helped him and solved his problem because every time her husband came to her to solve a problem, she just locked up more power, more power, more power. And she was really bringing in her father's agenda over her husband's agenda. She manipulated her husband to carry out the agenda that she had been taught as a, as a daughter of her father. Father, a very powerful man. And this is why Ahab did a lot more things to provoke the Lord. Okay, what we want to do now is watch the rise of a man in verse 1 of chapter 17. One of the most controversial men in the history of Israel. Nasty guy. And in the New Testament, he, an analogy is made between Elijah and John the Baptist. They apparently were both what we would consider slightly weird. They came out of the desert, both of them. They had their ministry. It was focused in a a lonely area. They apparently operated much alone, although they had fellowship with their other fellow prophets. Uh, Elijah came from down in this area. And ironically, John the Baptist ministered on a road that goes out from Jerusalem to the same area. Both of the men came from precisely the same geographical area. Elisha the Tishbite, who was the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, Now, right away, he's introduced in a position of revolt. And this is one of the things we want to watch now uh, as we proceed through this text tonight, that we're going to see uh, a mass revolt led by Elisha. And it's going to cause a lot of authority problems, and that's where we have to kind of examine ourselves and find out, well, what's going on here? We have a man who does not obey the king. We have a man who not only does not obey the king, he goes out of his way and he defies the king. So, how do we we reconcile this? Now, if you were the king, put yourself in Ahab's position. What do you smell in all this? Guy walks into you and tells you, I mean, there's, there's a twist in the word here. Do you catch the twist? It shall not rain, but by my word. Now, what immediately has, what's an issue that's been precipitated here? 
who's in authority? Who's in charge here, right? Because if it doesn't rain, what happens to the kingdom? Economically, it's destroyed. So in effect, what Elijah has done, he's walked into the court and he's jerked the whole king's policies around. Because now the guy, he, he's threatened with millions of dollars damages in his, in his economy. And no king can rule a stable nation if the economy goes down the drain. This is an assault on the economy of Ahab. And this one man has the gall to walk in and say that I will destroy your economy. You will do what I tell you to do, or you will face depression and a disaster. And that's how it comes across. It, it, don't, don't be too soft with this. So we have to go back and discuss something. And to do that, we're going to skip back one verse. A verse that looks like it's completely out of place and doesn't look at all like it flows. I mean, you could skip from verse 33 of chapter 16 very easily to chapter 17, verse 1, and never bother with verse 34. Why is verse 34 in there? In his days, as in the days of Ahab, Heo the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Why do you think the prophetic writers of the text bothered to inject this seemingly out-of-place verse in the middle of these two stories, or really in the middle of a drama? What has this got to do with the price of beans? I mean, what is going on here in this thing? Well, hold the place. Well, uh, well we're going to go on a little trip, so your hand will get tired, so don't hold the place. Go back to Joshua chapter 6 for a moment. This word of God came out of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. We're going back five centuries in time. Now, think about it. Five centuries. Subtract 500 from 19 or 2,000. What do you get? 1,500. Do you realize how far 500 years is before us? That's before the Protestant Reformation. That's back in the Middle Ages, the last end of the Middle Ages. Now, what would you think if there had been a prophecy about uh, some property up the road of 165 that was written down in some medieval document and said, the moment somebody tries to build in that acreage up here in 165, there's going to be two deaths, and the deaths are going to be in the family of the builder or the contractor who tries it. And the land's been, you know, it's all trees, and nobody's ever settled up there, and suddenly somebody, the land's sold, and somebody buys it, and they clear the trees off, and they start building, and there's an accident. And then there's a second accident. And somebody said, Yoo-hoo, look what we got here. 500 years ago, that land had a curse on it. And the curse is fulfilled. And the curse, in verse 26, was given by none other than Joshua. Joshua made them take an oath, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds his city, Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And with the loss of his youngest son, shall he set up his gates. And so the Lord was with Joshua. Does anybody want to hazard a guess now? Why is this incident recorded at this point in the prophetic text of Kings? 500 years later, seemingly has nothing whatsoever to do with Ahab. Or does it? 
Ahab has married who? Jezebel. Jezebel is allied with what? Religion. The religion of the Canaanites who were the object of what holy war of extinction? The extinction of Joshua. Joshua was led into that land to destroy the Canaanites, correct? Now we have the threat to the northern kingdom by a survivor of the Canaanites. And the question is, shall she reign in Israel? Shall she ascend? Will the Canaanite religion be successful in overcoming the word of God? Or will the curse of verse 26 be successful in controlling the Canaanites 500 years later? And the answer is given in Kings. Whose word shall prevail? Jezebel's and her father's or Joshua? The word that goes all the way back to the sacred canon of Sinai. So that's it in there. And remember we said, what were the two tests of a prophet? You're going to see now in the ministry of Elijah at this time in history, test number two comes into position. All the words of Baal are false and they don't hold up. Here's what Baal claimed. Let's turn to on the notes, um, you'll turn over to page 26. Again, the words of Dr. Broner. Here's what the word of Baal said. And it becomes a war. Baal wants to authenticate this false religion, had, tries to authenticate itself by proclaiming a gospel message. And here's the gospel message of Baal. The Canaanites believed that Baal was the storm and fertility god who bestowed upon man and land the blessings of fecundity. He could send forth lightning, fire, and rain. He gave corn, oil, and wine. He could revive the dead, heal the sick, and bestow the blessing of progeny. The Book of Kings shows, through concrete examples and incidents, that all the powers ascribed by Ugaritic mythology to Baal are really attributes only of the God, the Lord of Israel. Now look at what Broner has said. Underline the nouns that describe what the Gospel of Baal promised. Underline lightning. Underline fire. Underline rain. Underline corn oil and wine and think of the stories of kings. All right, now we come over and we want to look at something else. Elisha is not just making this up. Elisha is administering the Mosaic covenant and so we want to turn to certain promises and let's turn, since we're in uh, Joshua, let's turn back to Deuteronomy 28, just a few chapters. Remember when we went in Deuteronomy, we said the blessings and the cursings? We mentioned these recently. You can look in Leviticus 26 if you have time. We don't tonight, but that's a parallel passage. Deuteronomy 28, 23. What does it say? One of the cursings. The same Sinaitic covenant that cursed Jericho, that same era, is also the word that says... Verse 23, the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, the earth which is under you iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down upon you until you are destroyed. Down in verse 53, same chapter. 
Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy shall oppress you. The man who is refined and very delicate among you shall be hostile toward his brother and toward the wife he cherishes, toward the rest of his children who remain. So he will not give any one of them any of the flesh of his children which he shall eat, since he left nothing during the siege and distress by your enemy shall oppress you in all your towns. And the refined and delicate woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on ground for delicateness and refinement, shall be hostile or hate her husband she cherishes, and toward her son and daughter, and toward her afterbirth, which issues from between her legs, and toward her children whom she bears, for she shall eat them secretly for the lack of anything else during the siege and the distress by which your enemy shall oppress you in all your towns. That is the cursing prophesied five centuries before. So now we come back to 1 Kings 17. Does it surprise you then that the prophets injected that little note in verse 34. They're taking us back 500 years and they're saying, whose word comes true? And it's as though verse 34 is an announcement that the cursings are now beginning. When I took you back to Joshua, what was that? It was a curse that Joshua placed on Jericho. Verse 34 here in 1 Kings 16, the curse comes into historical existence. Now, verse 1 of chapter 17, another curse is now activated. Now the climate changes. Now the rain stops. Now the economy will be destroyed. And it will be done through the prophet Elijah. So here is a fundamental picture of a prophet. And this is going to stay with us when we, whether we deal with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or any of those guys. These men are not what you learn in school. Here's the picture you get of a prophet in these little Bible history courses. Well, the prophets of Israel were social reformers. The prophets of Israel were not social reformers. They were far more profound characters than that. They were the ambassadors of the great king who from the courts of heaven announced the rule of the great king and in particular the discipline of the great king. So all through this period, the prophets are announcers of God's chastening and God's discipline upon sin in his kingdom. Not talking about discipline on the pagans, not talking about discipline outside the election. He's talking about his own elect, secure nation. Because they are elect, because they are mine, I am going to discipline them. So that begins the contest. And so we have the big drought. And now, in, um, in verse 8 and 9, let's see if we can put this story in context. You see how neat the Old Testament fits together? If you just see the themes, all these little pieces start filling in like beads on a necklace. They look random when you first read them. And then you say, oh, wait a minute. No, no, this fits. Okay? So, verse 8, the word of the Lord came to him and he says, Arise, go to Zareph, which belongs to Sidon. Now, where is he traveling? Let's think about the political picture. What is the meaning of this little vacation up north? He is a prophet who came from the south, right? He's a guy that came out of this area, the green territory. He goes north, so automatically he's identified with Judah. Now this guy keeps on going north, out of the orange area, all the way up here. What is the meaning of this story? 
Why this location? Who did Ahab marry? The daughter of the ruler of this area. Where was this Baalism coming from? Where was Baal's home ground? Sidon. Now, that's the background of the story. Go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. I commanded a widow there to provide for you. And she arose and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the city, widow was there gathering sticks. Please give me a little water in a jar. And she's going to get it. She called her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. She said, as, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. Behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Why is she in such dire straits? What's happening in this territory? No rain. Oh, isn't this interesting? This is Baal's home plate. You mean to tell me whose word now rules? You see the argument going on here? Whose God is controlling the situation and even dares to reach north into the very heartland of Jezebel's dad? and stop it raining there. It's enough to stop it raining down here. But the rain has stopped in Baal's own home ground. And so then Elisha says, don't fear, do as you've done, but give me a little bread, and so on. And you see, he makes her submit to him. Because in submitting to the prophet, who is this poor widow submitting to? She's submitting to the God of the prophet. And so she is blessed, and so forth. And, it, and, and the bowl of flour is not exhausted, nor did the, the, the jar of oil become according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. What is this an argument for? Well, it's an argument, as all these stories are an argument, during the Elisha cycle. This man is going around and systematically refuting the gospel of Baal. Your God doesn't work. I've been to his homeland. Okay, then we come, that's the setup. Of course, for the great story, which we'll have to, we'll, we just mentioned tonight, most famous, one of the most famous stories in all scripture, um, 1 Kings 18, and this is the announcement in verse 1, go show yourself to Ahab, I'm going to send rain in the face of the earth. So Elisha went to show himself to Ahab, and Ahab called Obadiah over the household, and it came about Jezebel destroyed the prophets, well, this gives you background that the prophets, there were prophets in the north, but look in verse 3 and 4 what was happening to them. They were being persecuted because the official policies of the state were anti-biblical. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land, so forth and so on. Elisha met him. And Elisha is now going to come before Ahab. And it's a big long story of how he got there and so forth. Verse 17. Here's the next meeting of Elisha and Ahab. When Ahab saw Elisha, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? You see, a real friendly, friendly conversation going on here. And it's going to get a lot more friendly before we finish chapter 18. And he says, I have not troubled Israel. You and your father's house have, because you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you've followed the Baal. Sort of like the argument you see in the press now. Poor starving children in Iraq, and they are starving, by the way. And it's the United States' fault. Here's this clown that runs the place. is building enough uh, bacterial warfare that he can eliminate the whole population of the earth. And, of course, it's our fault. Well, it's the same thing. See, it's Elijah's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. And he straightens him out real quick as to whose fault it is. 
It's, it's the fault of sin in the kingdom. That's the fault. And he goes on and he gathers to me the prophets and we'll go through that next week um, and some of the words that are said there. But the argument we want to notice as we go through this, get the big picture. Elisha is now being called. This guy is God's bulldozer. He's going to go up into the north and he is going to assault their entire theology. He is going to publicly ridicule it and then he's going to turn around and he's going to incite a mob to slaughter the staff, administration, and all the hirelings of Ahab. And then he's going to go down, go ahead and tell Ahab what I did. So, this spills the drama. This is one of those great dramatic moments in history. Um, and it's, it's been repeated several times throughout the Old Testament. But it's a wonderful passage. But it's like David and Goliath. It's a wonderful story if you just take it as a story. But as mature Christians and as you grow in the Lord, learn to see that it's a bigger story. There's a bigger story going on here. And it harks back to what we said. There are these two tests for the prophet. And Elisha is applying this test. He's showing that the word of Baal, the pro they have believed that Baal can give rain. And this is a refutation. He is applying. Everybody knows T1 is true. They all know that God has been replaced. There's no question that the gospel of Baal is, is, is conflicting with the gospel of Jehovah. But what they now need to see is that the gospel of Baal can't deliver. So all the stories are to undermine unbelief. Father, we thank you for men like Elijah who had courage to stand up for your word, who when they were told to speak your word, they spoke it, even at the risk of their life. And we thank you for the quiet authors of this text. We don't know who they were. We just know that you call these prophets to preserve these writings, to put them together for our edification. That gives us a view into the past so we can see how our God and our Savior reigns. And when we say that you reign, we can get a clearer picture of what it means to say that you reign in heaven. Father, we give you thanks for your blessings and, and here for your consistency in giving us the assurance that though the cursing is bad and the discipline is often painful, yet we know that you are a very consistent God and that you do hold your promise for good or for evil. In Christ's name, amen. Next week we'll continue with uh, 1 Kings 18. If you'll read uh, pages 26 and the notes and particularly up to page 28. And on page 28, there's a big, long quote there that's very important. might have been. The question here was, when uh, Ahab uh, married Jezebel, was it probably her father uh, reaching into the, the riches of God's kingdom? Uh, political motivation? Probably. You know, we're not told that. But um, those guys, if we think about what else we know about Tyre and Sidon, up to this point, what's been their history? They knew, they, when Hiram ruled Tyre, apparently he wasn't a fanatic Canaanite, and Solomon made trees with him. Uh, remember, Solomon agreed to plant so many trees uh, if he would bring down um, 
the trees to the temple and there were deals made and, and Solomon hired it. I mean, these guys knew that the treasury was good in the south. So I'm sure they knew very well that this pl the Jews were a prosperous country up until this point. And so, yeah, I would imagine that those deals worked that way. It's just that when you read the history through the eyes of the prophet, I was warned about this one time back when I was studying the Old Testament by a guy, a PhD from Harvard, who was a Christian guy, and he was warning us if, that if we took a time machine and went back in history and walked around Israel, the image we got from just walking around would probably be different than the image we're getting out of the Old Testament. And not because the Old Testament is false. It's just that the Old Testament represents a prophetic reflection on what was going on. So it's like uh, you go around and, of course, we, it would be hard for us not to have the prophetic uh, picture because we have been schooled in the prophetic picture. But if you could imagine yourself just as a student of history walking around, seeing these kings and stuff, and say you, you really weren't clued into Scripture, um, you might not observe great moral evil, for example, with Ahab. But, and you might come on, and if you had seen Elisha walk into the court that day, uh, saying these nasty things that he said, you'd say, for crying out loud, what is his problem? You know, you might side that way. But the prophets set up the big picture in the context of God's plan. And so we have learned our biases just because we've listened to the prophets. Good we have because that's the way God's teaching us through these lessons. But those secondary plots were probably there very much so. It's just that the prophets seem to skip over that and get to what they consider the root problem. The root problem was this importation of religious belief. Well, these kings did intermarry with their children to solidify relationships. So it was the kind of standard operating procedure. It's just that... I think what it tells you is that in Jezebel, in um, Jeroboam's day, remember we made the point that he had replaced the Levitical priesthood and the Levitical priesthood functioned in the kingdom as Bible teachers. That was one of their functions. They also functioned as medical doctors too, by the way. Uh, so they had kind of this several faceted ministry. And, but one of their ministries was teaching the Word of God and particularly preserving the text of the Torah because they didn't have printing presses and mimeograph machines and, and uh, X, uh, Xerox machines. So these, these guys would go along. They, they were probably the ones that actually copied these scrolls. And so they would copy the scrolls and they would have master copies and they would you know, painstakingly sit there and dictate all these texts. I mean, making a scroll is tough. And you look at the Hebrew text and you figure every one of those little characters has to be hand done. Excuse me. But that's going to take many days, mucho weeks. And so they would preserve these texts and they would, you know, deposit it for the king. Well, if there's no Levites around to do that, what does that tell you is happening in the royalty? Well, the royalties are cut off from the scriptures, not listening to the scriptures, not executing Deuteronomy 17. And so here you are four dynasties later and they probably didn't even think of the word of God. Huh? Word of God? What's that? Uh, it's something about our, oh, that's back in our old Jewish history sometime. So that probably was characterized the guy's mind. So when he, you know, when the deals were made and cut and he took on this girl as his, his queen, you know, I'm sure he, 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 if he had been at all sensitive to the word, 
you know, it should have clicked with him, excuse me, but I don't think she's quite appropriate for the king of Israel. But it's like he just oblivious, never, no, didn't think about it. Probably, judging from his character, Ahab is kind of thoughtless. Um, he's, you, the picture you get in Kings is this guy is not a vicious man. He's kind of like a cast for milk toast. And his, and his wife rules the roost. And, um, and, and she's the one that's sort of like Bloody Mary in English history. So she's a real witch. Ten Commandments be in a courtroom. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's interesting, see, because when the, you're exactly right, Carl, because when changes are so slow to take place, it takes, even in our own families, I mean, it takes three or four generations. And it's, it's tragic that we don't think back to our two generations, even in our own families. Like I've said before, if you can trace back your bookshelves of whoever in your generation, your home, and your family lineage lived between 1900 and 1930, and you can examine that personal library, I think you'd be surprised at what you saw there. I think you'd see rank liberalism. And you want to, but then if you could go back further, and this is not true of all families, but, but I think it, it typifies families in our country that if you then took, went back and was able to interrogate the beliefs of the, your great-grandparents who lived before 1900 and you somehow could get hold of their books, and what they believe, or their letters, or things they wrote, or the family Bible, what they put in their family Bible, then you would see, I think, quicker, um, much more faith. I have two photographs I got, and I still haven't been able to think to get them put in overhead transparency for you, but um, I guess I mentioned here one night, um, we saw two gravestones, and I, I'd always like to go through the old graveyards in New England because they date back to the late 1700s and 1800s. And I was, the, the, oftentimes, you know, the, the letters are all worn, but you kind of got to watch carefully, you can see them. And one thing I always noticed when we were in Massachusetts one time, I started looking at these gravestones, and I noticed the names struck me, that the names were all names of the fruit of the Spirit, charity. Uh, prudence. And you never see people named that way. But why were they naming their kids that way? Because to them, character was important. So right there, there's an eloquent testimony right there in the gravestones. And, and to do that, you have to go back 250 years. So, so that's how far back that goes. Well, then, um, we saw last summer, we were up in, a, in Maine, and we saw a gravestone that said, uh, it was in, I think, 18-something, and it said, oh no, it was in the late 1700s, and it said, um, um, in Jesus she believed, to Jesus she has gone. Man wrote that about his wife. So it's quite clear that they were Christian. Then we walked down a few rows to 1943, and there's this praying hands on this rock with the expression, I did it my way. And it's, it's eloquent. I, I had to take a picture of it. It's so blatant. And it's so obvious. And what's interesting about that gravestone, the more I thought about it, was this. Here in block letters was written, I did it my way. And then, if he were really open about it, that's what they should have left it, just like that. But they couldn't let that go. They had to have sort of like clip art, and they had to have the praying hands. Now, what did the praying hands have to do with the text? 
See? It was like the praying hands as part of clip art was just what's left of the Christian tradition. It's sort of like good decorations that we just sort of keep around because it makes us feel good. And then we just totally ignore it. And it's a total disjoint here. There's a total conflict between the praying hands I did it my way. If I did it my way, why are you praying? So I think you're right is that we have sped through five centuries of time here and we see it very quickly. But let's face it, I mean, Ahab was four generations after, Jezebel, after um, Jeroboam. So it took four generations. That would be like us going back to the early 1800s. Jer- Jeroboam, the sins of Jeroboam, that's ancient history to the people of Ahab's time. So you're right. It's a good observation. Very slowly. But what's interesting, to, if you think that, Carl, is think about the significance of that little verse that we covered about Jer- Jericho. Because the prophets picked right up on that. Even though that was ancient history, it verified in front of their face. So they said, uh-oh, send the flag up, put this verse in here. See, that's the prophetic mind. And probably that didn't even make the front page of the papers. You know, if they had newspapers in that day, which they didn't, but it probably didn't even make headlines that that guy lost his two sons in Jericho. It was probably some on the obituary column on page 50. But to the prophets... That little note on page 50 was far more important than what was on page 1 that day because of what it said about the Word of God coming true. So that's kind of some kind of a flow. Um, any other questions about this time? Yes. Had not been taught. And that's, that's, that's the point, is that the Bible calls that foolish. There's three or four words in Hebrew for foolishness, and one of them is a kind of used for children and adults who don't know right and wrong. It's the same word for fool. And it just means total naivete. And that's, that's a good point. The guy might have been a total innocent that tried to build... And, but the significance was, see, Jericho was an emblem of the conquest because it was the first city that was destroyed. It was, the, it was the barrier that was breached into Canaan by holy war. So it was a very, very important city in Jewish history. And anybody would have been stupid enough to raise... I mean, it would be like somebody in Texas doesn't know what the Alamo is about. Now, I'm sure there are new people that move to Texas and don't know what the Alamo is. But, boy, if you've been living in Texas any longer, the Texans have an interesting... Of all the states I've lived in, it's very interesting... People that live in Texas have much more of a sense of their own history than any state I've ever been in. They let you know very quick that they were the only state to join as a country, the Lone Star Republic. And, and so they have their sacred places, and the Alamo is one of their great places. But 
for anybody to say bulldoze down the Alamo and say, gee, was this important? I mean, that's as stupid as trying to build Jericho. And that's a good observation, Debbie, that, that the guy really might have been stupid and ill-taught. Good observations, people. Yes. Well, that's a good question. Why didn't the king check with the prophets? What had he done with the prophets? Now, I didn't, I didn't um, cover it, but in 1 Kings 18 tonight, you'll read about this Obadiah that shows up on the scene. And uh, Obadiah had ran a smuggling operation. I mean, he saved 150 prophets that Ahab was going to kill. Ahab didn't want anybody... He didn't want the Levites, who could have taught him the scriptures. He didn't want the prophets who could have interpreted the scriptures and supplemented them for him. I mean, he just drove away everybody from his administration that could possibly have helped him. He either excommunicated them, threw them out, or just did away with them, killed them. Hey, okay. So, well, our time is up. So, uh, if you'll, next time, if you'll look at 1 Kings 18, it's kind of an exciting chapter. Read what Elisha says to him in a modern translation. <laughs>